0: Home House. Welcome back to Pod Clubhouse's final episode of coverage for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, season five, episode nine. This is the season, the series finale, entitled Four Minutes. This is Paul. This is Caroline. This one opened up with the last of our flash-forward cold opens with a sad, used-up Lenny Bruce. How did you feel seeing Lenny Bruce in this state after seeing him at the top of his game earlier in the season, or earlier in the show?
1: I guess we had to have some amount of closure with him that realigned him with reality. Because when we last saw him, he was saying goodbye to Midge and like heading off to, to go seek his fortune and whatnot. And we knew that she was concerned about him even then. I mean, she was always like low level concerned. But because of the reality of Lenny Bruce passing away during this time period, like they had to do something that could get an audience member who doesn't know anything about what the real circumstances were, like, they had to kind of bridge that gap, I guess I want to say, from the last time we saw him to the reality of him dying not long after these episodes, then they had to tell us why or, like, how show us a little decline.
0: Right. I think the low point must have been the, do you want to see my dance? oh my god that was really bad
1: <laughs> that was really bad the whole thing I mean him just reading off basically like the charges or just trying to just I mean it was rough stuff and and to see Midge and Susie try to figure out how to help him best it was interesting how midge had created that boundary of sending Susie in and sort of like sizing up the situation and then determining whether or not she would see Lenny that was some new boundaries that we hadn't really seen out of midge really in the whole series that I applaud her for sort of like being like I you know I'm not just going to go all in right away I'm going to actually step back a little bit and and be a little bit more cautious about what I do here that's not Midge's forte
0: <laughs> Well this is a this is jumping ahead of Smidge this is 1965 and she is only 4 years out from where this episode leaves at least as far as the Gordon Ford show and she is At that point, firmly in control. Susie is, like she said, she's Phyllis Diller's manager by then. So things have accelerated in a pretty short amount of time.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. I was okay with revisiting Lenny Bruce. I don't know how everyone feels about that. It's one of those things where it's a finale. You have that ticking time clock of like, oh, my God, I need to see everything I can possibly see. So was that amount of time on Lenny warranted? For me, I'm good with it. For other people, I could see where maybe they wanted a little more, you know, maybe flash forwards, a little bit more just of Midge generally, you know?
0: Sure. But... Overall, I mean, we gave every other side character, even the lady protesting in um, Central Park, a little minor send-off this season. And I think it would be wrong not to give Lenny the send-off that history demands of involving a real-life character in a fictional show and doing it in a way that shows that Midge tried.
1: Yeah. And also sort of the the frustration, I think, that maybe any of the audience would have felt back then. But even some people like us who maybe have found Lenny Bruce like later on and then you have that, God, it's just so tragic and so terrible that he passed away when he did, you know, and just one of those like it shouldn't have happened. You know, it didn't need to happen. I felt like they were depicting all of our collective societies like, oh, you know, that it's just it's so hard to help somebody who won't help themselves and that was where he was at and this is how he got there and we all just have to feel helpless alongside of Midge and Susie and I think think that that's an accurate feeling of how most people who enjoy comedy feel about Lenny Bruce like just helpless like man I wish somebody could have done something for him but this is the finale Paul and we need to start at this moment saying like we are terrible about doing finale episodes because we hate to say goodbye to characters so for you to just jump right into Lenny like way to just like pile on the sadness for me over here
0: I am excellent at avoiding the elephant in the room (laughs) I didn't want to acknowledge to anyone especially those listeners that listen to this out of sequence or in future times or whatever that that we were in fact very late whatever let's move on let's move on to finishing up another storyline getting some of Susie's backstory and how it relates to Hetty and all that did you expect something like this I and mean, we had been piecing together mm-hmm. that they had been romantically involved I didn't expect college to play into it but I didn't I didn't know why I had that assumption.
1: Well, because we had talked about this a little bit in the last episode that like Susie doesn't show any type of college aptitude. So for us to be like, why would they have ever met at college? I don't really get it why they made Susie a college student there. Why couldn't she have just been working at the diner? Because at the end of the day, the fact that she was like working in it was they didn't specify, but it's on like a cafeteria or something where students definitely hung out. And she was having to do that because she was on scholarship and everything. But it didn't have to be like that. She could have just been a waitress at a diner in a college town. She didn't need to be a college student alongside of her. So that part, again, I said this last episode, I was really weirded about this whole idea that Susie was at this like high-end college, I just don't see her getting there. I don't see that she would have ever had the support system or anything to get there. It didn't make a lot of sense to me, but it certainly put us in this position of Hetty being able to pull all these strings that when you look back over time, do you think that this was set up well enough for us as the audience? Like, I know we are always, especially in finales, you're it's really hard not to be like, please do not just swooping here, with like some sort of solutions for everything, and Midge trying to get on this show has been you know this issue for a while, and all of a sudden, we have this very obvious bam knock it out of the park position to be put in. That was like, huh, okay, are we cool that this was like very much like a magic bullet situation? So, so
0: if you were rewriting the marvelous Mrs. Maisel mm-hmm. as a novel, right, you would probably. Stitch, Gordon Ford, and to some lesser extent, Hetty, into the public consciousness of the show way earlier than the end of last season.
1: Right. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And, and if you are going to put them as having met as college students together at the same very exclusive university, you're going to have to explain how Susie that lived on a dock who had nothing at all ever got there. You're going to have to tell me something more than just I was on scholarship and that just erases all of the rest of what we know about her that she just like slept on this single bed in a tiny closet of an apartment. Like mm, that that was a really far reach for me.
0: They had been dropping little abstract I have a past, I have secrets, I'm not telling you kind of stuff, but it felt super mm, not like a cop out, but just general, just like a just like well that's what you say about a character that you that you're wanting to keep secret you know and then for it to kind of coalesce all at once it's not overly fast but it is like i just wish
1: no i get it because it fixed everything that's the part that bothers me is that it fixed everything like midge getting on there fixed her issues with her ex-husband her in-laws her parents her her job like everything got kind of fixed very quickly, even though, I mean, people can say like, no, no, you guys have been watching this the whole time. I mean, we've been building up and building up. And we knew because of the Joan Rivers parallel story that we're going along with, we knew her big break was going to be on Gordon Ford. We said that last season, at least, if not before, you know, where we're like, there's going to be a talk show stitch, whether she's a writer on a show, on a TV show or whatever. So maybe they did telegraph enough to us, but having the magic key be a college relationship of Susie's be the key to getting her on at the end of the day I just felt it was a little bit like well okay super duper duper convenient they did earn that spot for her to actually get a chance to do her act on Gordon Ford and a little bit it feels like because it was kind of orchestrated in this very specific way it felt less earned in the moment and more like what it ended up kind of having to be, where she just ended up having to grab the mic and mm-hmm. just do it because, because almost in, re, in in the story, even it was like, I can't believe it's taking this much <laughs> to freaking get to this point, and it's getting so like pushy, pully, will they, won't they? That it's like she just finally was like enough.
0: Well, we'll get to the grab the mic point. Oh,
1: I know we will. We'll get there to the four minutes.
0: The four minutes. How many words was it to end Gilmore Girls? Four, I think they, yeah. I lot. wonder. Four. Hmm. Because four is the magic number here. That's the title of the episode. Four was the slot that she she stole. Mm-hmm. The
1: Marvelous Mrs. Maisel is four words. Oh. Mm-hmm. It is four because it's, I'm not going to say what the words are. You're saying it, but. And that's saying it. (laughs) All right. A lot of people thought it was going to be like, mom, I love you or something like that. Like, that's what people thought it was going to be for Gilmore Girls.
0: (laughs) (laughs) By the way, that that cliffhanger from last episode where she runs out of the office, that is Midge bailing Susie out of jail at the beginning of this episode just to kind of catch us up on plot points. All right, so... Whether we totally agree with the buildup or not, it works. Hetty does make her ask last episode, and Gordon agrees to something in this episode. Now, how did this whole thing with Gordon agreeing but not agreeing, and then kind of being a chicken shit later, how how did that jive with you did it just did it amp up the stakes in a way that was like well it's building up to this point where she's got to grab the mic or is it like too much like uh she's earned it you can give it to us at this point we understand you could just be cool you don't need to kind of turn Corden into this ogre
1: it started to get too weird and contrived for me like i don't know why they needed to make another road hump at that point I mean, it's fine, and it creates the situation where she has to be spontaneous in order to step into the spotlight. And so for that, I'm cool with it. For the amount of, like, bumping their heads against the wall, like, I mean, like, Mike, the producer, had no idea he was pulling out stools. Like, the whole thing was so, like, vengeful, and then he fired her anyway. So it's like, the whole thing just felt like... I don't know. Did Gordon have to turn out to be like a big jerk like that or so egotistical? I don't know. The reality, though, is that Johnny Carson never spoke to Joan Rivers again after she got her own job at her own talk show. Right. And it was like and Joan Rivers was always shaking her head about like, why did he have to do that? Like he was my biggest supporter and then suddenly, you know, wasn't. So I guess they were trying to you know, infuse some of that sort of pettiness maybe into Gordon's storyline. I applaud them for figuring out a way to create the spontaneity, like where she had to just take all the risk in order to do it. And I and I appreciated the back and forth between her and Susie, where Susie's like, nobody told you to get up on the stage. Nobody wanted you to say the things you said. Nobody, you know, like you just got to do it. You know, you got to do what you do. And And that is, I mean, her... Courage and her bravery in that moment is what makes the entire show, you know, her ability to just throw down and just go all in, you know, most people cannot do that.
0: I wonder if they had written a version where, say, Gordon doesn't dick out and just gives her a slot on the show and she performs and it's outstanding without the added road bump of needing to, to grab the mic. I wonder if audiences would have been happy with that version as opposed to, you know, no one asked, like, like you just pointed out, Susie said no one asked her to get up on the stage. She just took it. And then that's how she had to end it was just just taking the spotlight. So I guess it it does make sense.
1: It does. I mean, yeah, a thousand percent. It it, it really does make sense. It just we were totally happy and satisfied with this finale. It doesn't sound that way on this podcast. It sounds like. We're like, meh, this is kind of shit writing or meh. Why'd they have to use that like kind of cliche device to create like another obstacle? It's not exactly like that. I mean, we already had the antics of like the phone call to Rose. Like, let's talk about that for a minute. Sure. I appreciated the fact that Rose had to be hit over the head with the idea that Midge is doing everything she possibly can to be there and tell you you know, to please come and invite you because her, you know, default setting is no one called me. Nobody invited me. I'm not showing up. That's an Emily Gilmore. Oh, this is a pity invite. Like we've seen that. We've seen that play out and we've seen them like either show up or not show up. You know, the entire thing of them actually having to show Rose how far Midge has been willing to go in order to, get her mom's approval and to have her mom be properly invited.
0: Shirley, the writer's room, Zelda,
1: everybody, everybody, everyone was calling. Like, I mean, it was nuts, but, but the whole idea that like, that's what it took. I think that as small as that was, and as casual as that seems, I think it's as big of a breakthrough as what went on with Abe in the previous episodes, which it sounds weird because everything with Rose was played for a joke, but the hit of on her heart of her realizing that Midge had gone through all of this just so that her mom would come, I think it really made her realize, like, wow, she really wants me there. And so then she really wanted to be there. And that's brand new. You know, Rose hasn't wanted to be at any of her shows. And so she had, like, this very huge moment, but it was veiled in comedy and veiled in slapsticky running, you know, trying to get the cab, trying to get on the bus. But she had a really big moment there between the both of them.
0: What did you think of the antics trying to get the cab?
1: Well, I thought it was pretty wild and silly. And of course, the idea that it would have been bumper to bumper traffic and getting on a bus would be a great idea. I want to be like, like the bus doesn't fly. So, I mean, I don't know. You're kind of stuck. There's the fact that they were willing. I mean, these are prim and proper people. And the idea that they would be willing to step foot on a bus or willing to even just run around in traffic or do anything. I mean, God, think of where we started. You know, think about even halfway through the series where it's like they still didn't even really know what she did for a living. You know, even at the start of this episode, Rose was like, she doesn't want me there. She doesn't care if I'm there or not. And like she had to get all the way to running around in New York City traffic and getting on a public bus. She had to get that far in one episode.
0: I like how much Abe is still Abe and desperately trying to sort this out, but he's you know, he sees the gridlock with the cabs. Rose is like, "You needed to ask Mike to blow the whistle and he, mm-hmm. and he says something to the effect of "Mike's whistle isn't magic. This isn't Narnia <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> That is really funny I love that. <laughs> Yeah, they had some good laughs in this. I mean, I thought that some of of Midge's actual like stand up routine wasn't as funny in this for this like finale as some of her other acts have been. You know, she hit on all the all the important things that she wanted to, like her kids or the ex-husband. Like, we did the book ending of it all, you know, where how we got here, why we're here, reminding us of her her Jewish culture, reminding us of her family. Like, she went through the whole thing again, you know, which for us is, like, it's not new, but it's the same type of stuff that she was talking about at the beginning, you know, mm-hmm. what she made for dinner, what her kids are doing, what her, what her then-current husband was up to. I mean, I think the comedy in this episode totally worked for me, and I was cool with sort of the lighthearted slapstickiness of it. It There's so much in Gilmore Girls of this, like it had a lot of Kirk energy going on. <laughs> it was reminding me of them, of when he like uh, takes them on the pedicab. It's just, it's so funny. Like, because then they start running after him and it's like, just, it's all funny. Well,
0: that scene might've been one of the most expensive scenes in all of the series. Because if you think about it, they had to lock down that section of street in New York. Fill it with period cabs, and that's the only part of the, the show that had like orchestral scoring to go with it. It was a big deal to get that all choreographed, and then you
1: sure that that was a on location shot. There was an awful lot on studio lot.
0: It could be, it could be, because but it looked like it was just adjacent to. But it, that's what studios are meant to look like. But uh, still, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> we were just at the Warner Brothers lot, which is why I'm kind of giving him a look like. Uh.
0: But uh, all right, I think we were on
1: the New York City street backlot. But that you uh, you do
0: know that they do shoot in New York for this, so
1: right. But I but I think a lot of you know you could you could totally be right. You could totally be right. I think it would be crazy expensive to do it that way, and especially because some of the other ones that we saw that were like flashbacks, like think about like Joel's scene on like the in like the alleyway where it's like the bridge is over there all that business going on in the previous episode, that yeah. all seemed very backlotty to me because they didn't really ever back off and show you, like, the bridge is right there. If the bridge was really right there. You know what I mean? Like, which, hello, bridges are big. <laughs> 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 but, you know, it's like, I, I don't know. But but I do think that it was, a like, a very cinematic shot. It was very exciting. It was very, like, frenetic. It was... A lot going on that was was exciting and did breathe a lot of life into the episode because there was suddenly not only were the parents like having all this energy to get to the show and they had like this urgency with the with the time of the show starting and we had to hurry, hurry, hurry. But also this has been 30 some years in the making of them finally having the fire lit under them to be there for midge.
0: You know, Mm, and so
1: it was like exciting on a lot of levels.
0: On the Gordon Ford show itself, there was an astronaut. Alan Shepard. Okay, whatever. But you know I would, when they
1: were getting ready, Paul. I thought it was. I I thought this was so out of place when they had Midge come out and take that phone call
0: in the in the
1: lingerie. Right. I felt like that was so weird. Well, you
0: know, phones were really hard to come by back then. Apparently, but, uh, uh, but like
1: closing your robe isn't hard to come by. Like that was really weird. I thought that that was that. Maybe don't that's know. the
0: bookend to showing her boobs in the first episode.
1: Maybe so. Maybe it is. Maybe she was being a little... Rachel's
0: like, I don't show boobs anymore.
1: (laughs) Or maybe just... Or maybe she's a little more sophisticated now. I don't know. But I mean, it definitely had like a huh kind of feel to it. I'll go with the book ending if there was like, we needed some amount of skin because we showed skin in the first one. Okay. But that really surprised me. And it seemed out of character to me. Like that she wouldn't... Like she's so worried about being so prim and proper that she has to change her outfit for a third time. But as at her workplace with just her robe spread open, I, I'm sorry, it doesn't really match up for me.
0: She's been running around trying to get people to call her mom all day. She can't remember everything,
1: like closing her robe.
0: Yeah, know. yeah. And
1: hey, I'm not like you know, I I could care if she wants to wear that around, or if they or if they ever Your robe showed is open her, right now. If they ever showed her laying around in her underwear like that was a thing that she did and nobody you know paid attention like whatever if she was like at home and they ever showed her ever sitting around in her robe with her robe open then I'd be like oh she's like forgetting herself like she's treating work like she would treat home I mean she's she's not really ever like that you know Mm -hmm. so I don't know it was a weird one but I get it again we're going for like visual gags and of course we have like the writing room all like salivating all, all over her so there's that
0: the writing room did react to Midge uh, getting a spot before them, but it wasn't um overdone. It was just like when they changed the fucking rules. <laughs> <right here? laughs> that was funny. Yeah.
1: And and of course, like, you know, it was sort of like it says to me like all the inside jokes about like how multi-talented writers actually are. Like everyone in that writer's room had some other talent or something they wanted to actually be known for. I felt like that was very inside industry kind of nodding
0: where I was going with the uh, guest list on the show, it was to include someone that does a, an excellent um, impression of Carol Burnett, full on in her prime, singing. What is she shy in that in that song? But she's super loud and boisterous, of course, because she is Carol Burnett. Uh, the actress's name was Leslie Rodriguez Kitzer. She does a spot on Carol Burnett.
1: Yeah, that was awesome. And I, man, I was thinking like this is like a stacked show, man. They <laughs> have Carol Burnett on here, and then they' and then like we're gonna get. Midge, like I was like, wow. And Alan Shepard, like, wow. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) This is a big night on the Gordon Ford show. Followed, it was just only following, you know, the princess being on.
0: Right. I mean, that's that's also, I mean, Gordon must have been the big deal for his time.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think he's the Johnny Carson, right? So same, same.
0: While she's getting dressed, she looks at her little reminder that we get a flashback for regarding a fortune that she received from Lenny when he was still in his cheerleader phase during their relationship. This is one of those, if you were rewriting from back to front, you might stick that, that dinner in a previous episode.
1: Right. To have to make us remember a little bit better than just putting it sort of in there.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. It was a very I mean, sweet moment. It was
1: very sweet. And it, and it felt like a good luck charm. And, and I felt happy that she had a piece of Lenny there with her. And it, it made me feel more calm for her. Like, you've got this. Like, Lenny's with you. You've got your cheerleader in your corner.
0: But it all comes down to the moment on the show. The will she, won't she? Will she... Grab the mic.
1: Yeah. And so they did, like, uh, it was a continuous shot from what I understand where they're doing like that circling around the microphone. And uh, I was watching a little thing about the lighting department um, explaining about how complicated that shot was because... After they kind of swing around and she actually starts doing her stand up, they change the lighting so that it looks more like the gaslight. That was all on purpose. But because it was all one continuous shot and they kept swinging the camera around and around, the lighting had to like change in real time. But also you couldn't see it change. So as the camera would come around, like it would have to be where it needed to be. But it was practical lighting, too. So, I mean, it was like lighting her. It was complicated. And I appreciated that they like took on such a big cinematic kind of challenge of being like, how do I make this look like it's lit for a TV studio and also like it's lit like a dark, tiny little club down in the village? How do you how do you make that happen seamlessly without anyone seeing lights turn off and on, but you still have that dimmed light and then that really bright light of the spotlight? Continue to kind of move around each other. It was a really beautiful explanation for really the larger story of Midge and, and the idea of like she is both the woman in the black dress with the little bows on her shoulders doing her her little brisket, you know, pass over the brisket to to the manager in order to get your spot on the stage who, you know, does like take her top off and stuff, and now she's like this sophisticated woman on the, in the middle of the brightest lights ever, with like the bow now like smack in the middle of her chest with like the little sequins and everything. like it's all very great callbacks. And I just thought that they did a beautiful job with that, of of, trying, of seamlessly making it both the beginning and the end where she lands all at once.
0: Knowing Amy's background in dance and then sitcom writing. There's some filmmakers that that know like lenses and camera stock and you know all that technical stuff, and I don't think she's probably one of those. But I do get the sense that she knows what she wants in her mind, and it, as she has matured from Roseanne to to uh, Gilmore Girls to to this
1: and Bunheads and, and all Bunheads,
0: that she has grown in her effectiveness in telling. All those people, what she wants, and then getting it in front of the camera because stuff like that doesn't happen just with like a crude, you know, explanation or a drawing or something just on the page. She has to effectively tell them, See, and this I think that what, I want.
1: that what Amy, I think, and Dan in the same regard, I think that they bring this old timey Hollywood feel to everything they do, which really relies on things like having to use like lighting rather than any type of, like, true special effect or something like that. Like, you know who the bad guy is because he's in the shadows, you know? You know who the good guy is because he's, like, well-lit. Like, they do a lot of things that I would consider, like, old Hollywood – where it's 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 more practical effects. It's more doing these narrative cues by using the camera. Whether you're moving it around really fast, or you're or you're making the dialogue really quick, or you're not cutting away from the from the shot at all. Like it's all just one continuous shot. Those types of things, like a hundred percent, create their style, and it is like an old timey style. You know that doesn't rely on like fast one-liners just dun-dun-dun-dun, like, say, like, Friends or something would, you know, where you're just, like, there's no, like, exciting camera work on, you know, a studio shot like that, you know?
0: No, no. And but this is
1: very different.
0: No, they do use the camera, like, effectively, dynamically.
1: It makes me think more like theater. It's almost like we're trying to direct where you're supposed to be looking like via like a spotlight as opposed to like a movie where you're like taking in the whole thing and your eyes kind of get to decide where you're looking a lot of times, you know? I mean, obviously the director will like zoom in on certain things, but it's a little different. Like Amy and them, like they will cut out things that you wish you could see or you wish that was in the shot in order to be more provocative which is kind of again like an old timey way of doing it like don't show them whereas like now they make the monster or whatever but instead like back then they would just it would they would just rumor about a monster react to the monster react to it right it's all it's much more like theater where we can't make the monster we're not gonna make the monster but we're gonna make you have all the same emotions they do it very well
0: yeah I agree. And I think they're just getting better as they go. Like when we first heard the pitch that the next show from the Sherman Paladinos was going to be about a lady comedian in the 60s. Um, I could
1: not wrap my brain around it. it yeah, The it whole thing. I just kept being like, I don't get it. And I super don't understand the name and... Like, this is just not clicking for me. Like, coming off of Gilmore Girls, I was like, oh, man, I just don't know how this is going to go. And, I mean, they brought all their brand, you know, along with them for this. And I think that, of course, the casting was amazing with everybody. You know, we could probably dissect the finale even more. But I think, you know, as a finale episode for us it would behoove us to talk more about you know overall like did we enjoy the series did we think that they did great with all the casting and everything when i see them all do the interviews now that it's all over it is like oh you know like they they were cast so perfectly even i just saw this one where um rachel was referring to alex but called her susie and it was funny because even even alex was like uh eh, Like, what are you doing? Hmm. You know, because it was like, she didn't mean to do that. You know, she really meant to call her Alex, but called her by her character's name. So, you know, for me, it, it was really selling to me how much this group had become a family. And they were obviously very immersed in this Maisel world.
0: Well, let's finish up with that flash forward to 2005. Midge lives off Central Park. She's got a gigantic place with a staff but she's alone.
1: She's most definitely alone. I a lot of people were wondering about her kind of playing with the picture of her and Joel when she walks by and what does that mean about Joel? What does that mean about them? Where did they Right end it was up a black exactly. and White picture? It was, it was their him. wedding. Yeah. It was their wedding picture. And um looking back at that and, and wondering and and it's just like Amy and Dia not to give us A particular answer. My my best guess is over the years, they would have waxed and waned. You know, she would have been in other relationships. We know she had other marriages. But I bet they came back to each other back and forth. You know, that would not surprise me because of how by the end, he was like, use everything, use all, all the all the material, everything I've ever done, just like use it all for this. I think that they had come to such a place of respect and understanding that they They could actually come back and forth to each other. That's how I felt it.
0: The black and white picture, though, made me think. That he died? Yeah, he hadn't made it. Something about that just symbolized to me, in memoriam, Joel. Yeah,
1: Yeah. well, and regardless, even, even whether he died or their relationship died, grief was a part of that moment. There was a moment of tragedy, of sadness, you know. Because the reality is, is that if Joel hadn't done what he did, there would be no The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Right. Right. She doesn't have that breakdown and go on stage and do all that if Joel didn't do what he did. So that married moment, like there is loss there for a life unlived, regardless of if Joel was living in 2005. This show could have been called The
0: the Pivotal Mr. Maisel. Right.
1: The flandering Mr. <laughs> Measle. <laughs> we have to talk about the fact that the, how they live, uh, Susie and Midge, are so very different. The thing that struck me, of course, we talk about Midge's place first. So grand, so, so formal. And yet, you know, she eats in the kitchen with the staff. She doesn't eat at that beautifully set dining room table. You know, she, she retreats to like a really small den that was like clearly her private stuff. Like, this is where she, like, eats junk food and hangs out and whatever. And, like, that is not done in all the rest of the house. Right. So I, I thought that that was very true to life of what would have happened. That she she kind of has a, a little bit of arrested development in terms of, like, that she, kind of like Lorelai and all Gilmore Girls tended to go back to sort of teenage ways or young woman, very young woman ways, maybe early 20s college days of wanting to just sort of like curl up on the couch and watch Jeopardy with her best friend, you know, over the phone kind of thing like that. That's all very youthful. You know, that's something that that we might have done in college and been like, are you pushing like days of our lives like ready and go like push it like we would have done that the way that Susie was living. I man, I was like living for all of the visual like signaling to us how much she changed, like her long flowing hair with it wasn't pinned back. It wasn't held back. There was no hat on it. It was all just free flowing. Even the way that she used to dress like it was very like the thick wool materials and the dark colors and stuff. Now she's wearing this flowing thin, like just easygoing gown. Her home, what struck me was all I could ever think about with her apartment was oh my God, the walls seem like they're closing in on you. Like it's so tiny. It's,
0: it's partially underground.
1: Right. And yet her place that she chooses to, to essentially like retire to is basically wallless.
0: Yeah. I open mean, to the outdoors.
1: brilliant, right? Not I'm just open to the outdoors. Where were the walls? Like, it was practically an indoor-outdoor space, you know, that was just totally open. And then, of course, we saw her fall in love with the pigeons and have this, like, really tiny little storyline where she was, like, making a little house for them and like feeding them, talking to them. So then for her to have this beautiful giant bird cage with all these exotic birds that she could love on and nurture, that was very sweet and very quiet, very quiet. Like they didn't say, and now Susie is a bird expert or a bird trainer. Like they didn't tell us that. You just had to pay attention to the pigeon story to realize that she kind of found her calling with these birds.
0: Something about their... The way that they interacted in that final scene, knowing that they had had their their breakup and then their kind of reun- reunion, ap- you know, several years before this,
1: right? The whole Friars Club, right? everything.
0: It's it reminded me of like a married couple that that still got along, you yeah. know.
1: Yeah,
0: I mean to say, a married couple that had divorced that still got along. I should but, say, and I was saying, and, <laughs> 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 that was tricky. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
1: I got. I knew where you were going with that, but I got gotcha. you. <laughs> um, like, yeah, I agree with you, but also like that. Been best friends forever. There's nothing that could really break them apart. You know, not at the end. Like, even when it was happening that they were busting or that there there was strife between them, there was always a feeling of. They're in this for the long haul together, and and they showed us that, which I love. I love that they showed us that these two friends managed to stay together, and not even just like a little bit. Like they weren't like, oh, I haven't caught up with you in a while. No, this is clearly like, like a routine. Yeah, whether it's nightly or weekly or whatever, like this is what they do. There's
0: like a small enterprise that would have to that would have to <laughs> copy the the Jeopardy and then send it both ways, however that happens, and have it in in wherever Susie is.
1: Well, it's 2005. In it's time. Not, yeah, I mean, not, there's,
0: there's DVRs by then. So it's like, isn't there TiVo by then? Oof, uh, TiVo was coming. We
1: definitely had TiVo when the kids were small, for sure. Gilmore Girls was all over that TiVo. I just threw that TiVo out like last week. Do you know that? Man. Yeah. My mom was like, are you sure you want to throw that TiVo away? I was like... It has a sticker that said Jack on it. One of our kids had put like their oh, name man. sticker on it, but I threw it away because I was like, you know, the only thing that's on there is Gilmore Girls, and they're streaming everywhere, and I can and I have the DVDs and stuff, so I was like, let it go. We're trying to let stuff go, but like, man, yeah, yeah. So, but if Jack put a sticker on it. Then that he would have been little enough. Two thousand five, yeah. But still, she clearly like lived on the other side of the world though. Mm -hmm. For a thousand reasons. You could I mean it was daylight there and it was obviously nighttime for
0: Midge. Yeah. So So, it could have been Hawaii or
1: Yeah, Hawaii feels right, but or but it could have even been like Asia, you know? I mean, it looked like a really like awesome jungle type rainforesty something where like these exotic birds would would thrive with open doors and windows and walls. Yeah. And um and plus she had that really like kind of tropical kind of feel about her. I really I love how Susie turned out. Like good for her, you know? And I think it's actually really funny that they were watching Jeopardy because I had just, you know, said that like you know, college for Susie, that just doesn't really like match up. And so it's it's clear to me that there must be more to her that they want us to understand about her that just for me wasn't laid out enough. Like I always thought she was incredibly street smart, but I would have never said she was book smart. Right. Or did great in school or anything like that didn't match her her existence. So, OK, I see what you did here. Like you, you sh- you're you showing us that they would choose to sit around and watch a very intelligent show. And these two women were 100 um, percent like loving it. I am so happy they ended up like laughing and talking to each other on the phone and being good together. I don't know how I feel about Midge being alone in that huge apartment, except for that. I can't really imagine it any other way. Mm -hmm. Like if she was getting in bed with a husband, in a way, I feel like the camera would have almost like watched her turn her face into the camera, like with her face on the side of the bed, like just kind of staring at us like what am I doing here with this guy? (laughs) You know, like it would have felt like somehow we were like on the inside of the joke, but uh, also be like, yeah, this doesn't seem right. Like she seems like she should be in a big bed with starfishing out, you know, and not worrying about anybody else. Yeah. But it felt hard to see her very Sophie Lennon. It's hard to say. Do do you suppose
0: (laughs) that there's any kind of quote unquote woman having it all or not having it all myth built into the the way that she winds up? Or, or is Amy just telling a story? Don't read into it.
1: Or, I mean, I would say this is kind of a progression in a way from, say, Gilmore Girls, where in, like, Year in the Life, like, you know, they do end up together. I won't say who. Because I think that showing your next leading woman being 100% intact, great on her own without a significant other is like real progression. You know, that's like really showing like it's not about relationships matter in life and they 100% like can be a motivator or can be the deterrent that makes you make another choice or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's Midge in her place and Susie in her place. They have to deal with the consequences of the choices that they make. You know, Mm -hmm. I think it's growth out of the Paladino writing clan there that they actually were fine with leaving her alone. They did kind of poke fun that she had married a bunch over the years. Like that came out during this last season that she had been married back like a bunch of times. Yes. So you know it sort of makes that uh, you know, what's up with Midge? Like, you know, but also kind of maybe it just this reinforces underlines The idea that, you know, she's not going to be somebody who's going to live within the rules like this just isn't for her. And she's always going to sort of seek out like having that den, you know, like a lot of people wouldn't have that room. But she is, you know, and and so I respect her character for for it's not even maybe it's it's a misnomer. The concept of like having it all means you have to be married or you have to be attached to somebody else. Romantically, like she she has friends and she had people around her and she obviously is 100% in a relationship with her work. And, right. and that's who she can't go without even one Tuesday. She can't go without her partner, which is the microphone, her work. So she does have it all.
0: Who gets to define it all? Right? I think
1: it's changing. I think it all used to be like traditionally, right? Like spouse and children, family, and then a fulfilling career. Of, of anyone, Midge and Susie would be the women to redefine that and say, really? Is that really everything? At the end of the day, Midge had kids. And, and you know, there was that like lineage of that, that like whole thing of visiting the kids and having that whole world. She still had that. But it, it's just not the focus. You know, when we say having it all, it, you know, those were like, and also I have kids, you know, <laughs> I mean, which was her four minutes getting back to that, you know, where the joke is she doesn't even remember her kids names. They're not it in her having it all. They weren't it. They were never it for her. And so that's OK, too. You know, that's amazing that she figured that part of herself out and did what she needed to do.
0: That's kind of a new message for a lead woman over the course of the five season show in the in the landscape of TV without yeah I, I don't know putting too fine a point on that issue.
1: Well I mean like I'm watching um and just like that and you know that one is a follow-up to Sex in the City. You know, if you look at that it's all about chasing it all, right? It's all about really the relationship aspect of it all. Certainly career was important, but, but the, the thing that never really wrapped their hands around was these relationships. So for, for me to be watching that, and then also watching Midge just curl up on the couch and talk to her best friend and it not be about a guy, it be about intelligent questions that they were watching on television, that's amazing. You know, that is fresh and that is wonderful. We can have whole conversations without men talking about them or caring about them at all. <laughs> or women. We can just talk about... We don't have to talk about any romantic relationships. We can just be our own friendship selves, and that's all good. That's great. That's a great message to put out there. And you're right. I think pretty fresh. I do have to ask you, Paul. Did you expect Gordon Ford to be the one to say the marvelous? Um, I was waiting. I really thought it was going to be Abe when he said, she's remarkable. I was like, oh my God, say she's marvelous. Say she's marvelous.
0: Well, she didn't say it. Well, no. because... Because he has not been there the whole time. Right. However, since he provided such a huge road bump right at the last leg of the race, then it did, it did make sense. And you could feel it coming.
1: But how do you feel that it was Gordon Ford? Is it, is it like irritating now that we kind of know he's like a petty, mm-hmm. egotistical dude? Or is it like, no, within the industry, he was the kingmaker?
0: In the period, whether you like it or not, she had to bust through barriers represented by men. Right. Yeah. And so he was another one. Like it or lump it, getting that sort of approval was necessary to get to the next step. Unfortunately, she could have had every woman in the world say that she was fantastic. But until Gordon said, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on my show, it it wasn't going to get her to the next tier. So, yes, it did matter that it was him.
1: I agree. Well, I thought this was an amazing series. I really encourage people to go back and rewatch it again, especially realizing all the changes that have happened, even in our own culture, man. I feel like I've changed, Paul. I have grown. I've I've seen I'm older. I'm wiser since we started this whole podcast. And uh, yeah, I I feel differently. I, I think if I go back and watch it from the beginning, I might feel very differently about certain situations that happened. And I think it'd be kind of fun, you know, knowing where Abe ends up or knowing where the kids end up or whatever and then listening to like how they're talked about or what you know things that were going on I think you'd reframe it and it would be actually extremely enjoyable which most shows are not that great rewatching, but Amy Sherman Palladino knows how to do it keeps those layers in there this is Caroline
0: and this is Paul Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so other people in future times can find it as well.
1: Thanks for listening.
0: Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and
1: leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple
0: Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open and we'd love to hear from you. @PodClubhouse